0: In this episode, I am joined by Jason Miller. Occultist, author, and teacher, Jason discusses how to judge authenticity in the occult, considers the different levels of magical practitioner alive in the world today, and whether it is more efficacious to curse your enemies or pray for them. Jason reveals the origin and unfolding of his passion for the occult considers the role of talent in successful spellcasting, and recounts his astral awakening. Jason also shares the art of protection magic, gives his advice on occult protection for political candidates, and explains the steps he would take to extend magical protection if hired to do so. So without further ado, Jason Miller. Jason Miller, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm so delighted to talk with you here on the podcast, and I hope that today we can focus on your life and your path, path that's actually seen you intersect with several of previous guests on this podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, of uh, of uh, uh, quite a few, quite a few. It's it's been an eclectic, weird journey, uh, but that's the world we live in now, right? <laughs>
0: Yes, I've heard you say that you think it's one of the gifts of the age, actually. This uh, ability to taste and sample and contact many different traditions. Some people see that as a bad thing. They say, well, it encourages uh, dilettantism. But
1: you have a slightly different view. Well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with that view. I think, I think it does encourage dilettantism. I think that every... I think you don't get an upside without a downside. It's just the way things are. Um, and so I definitely see the the negative impact of dilettantism of people running to the new and shiny. Um, but at the same time, it does, it offers its own interesting perspective. You're no longer locked into one thing. Or if you are, you've you've decided upon that, right? So I think in this day and age, people come to a place where they have to make a decision. Whereas in the past, that decision would have been made for you. You were born into this culture. And maybe you're intersecting a little bit, or maybe you go travel widely, but for the most part, you know, your spirituality, your practices are going to be filtered through that lens, right? If uh, if Meister Eckhart wasn't born in Germany, if he was born in India, he would have still been Meister Eckhart. He would have still had that non-dualistic view, but it definitely would not have been through a Christian lens, Whereas nowadays, we're just, it's impossible not to interface with people. I mean, I was born in sort of rural, like the beginning of the rural part of New Jersey, right? Nowhere special. Uh, And before the age of 21, I had intersected with uh, an African-American root worker a couple centeros, um, a, a a Rosicrucian teacher, and a, a Nakba John Reynolds. So, how am I? You know, at that point, you're interested in magic or spirituality. What does that mean? Does that mean that you say, okay, well, I've got to pick one of these forever, or do I look at this as like it's a real thing and I'm going to see what's out there? And then I think that's where the difference between the dilettantes and serious people come in. Serious people will buckle down to one and become adept at it, you know competent if not mastery. And you can only do that with a few things in life, right? You can't do that with every book that you read, suddenly go off and and, and master it. But you can do it with a few things. So that's, that's sort of uh, what's out there. You have had,
0: you mentioned there, early in contact with practitioners, and that's something that, You've been fortunate enough to continue throughout your life. You've made contact with all sorts of interesting people. I'm curious. Before we get into the specifics of your biography, I don't know quite. I'm going to frame this wrong, and then you can correct me. But how many legitimate practitioners are there out there? They say, well, I met a root worker, and then I met you know this person's uh, you know Western magic. This one's that the other. Of course, a lot of people might identify themselves as such. They even perhaps teach classes or you know have a, a local group. I suppose you could say they're practitioners, they're, practic- they're practicing something, but is there a threshold beyond which someone passes where they become more than just a sort of participant in a system like that, and they become I don't know, holders of it in some sense, or they, they, they have some sort of, would it be the right word, power um, that they can wield via that, that system? I don't mean over others in terms of a hierarchical sense, but I mean perhaps in a magical sense.
1: Right. Well, you know... Um... This You've had a lot of tantrikas on, so I'm going to put it in those terms. In tantra, you've got generation stage and completion stage, right? Attached to your generation stage sadhanas and your practices, where you're visualizing yourself as a deity, and you're saying this mantra, and you're sort of on this, this journey, but for a lot of people, it's ritual. You know, it's, it's, you're a ritualist. You're visualizing, you're saying. And then, of course, there's those action mantras, spells, essentially. Right. And you've got thread crosses that you can make and you've got amulets that you can make and all these kinds of things. They're all attached to the generation stage one doesn't necessarily need to be a master of uh, the internal yogas in order to do those things and have them be effective. Right. So to that extent, I think there's a lot of people uh, who can do magic to one extent or another. Then there are people who go deeper and they are doing those completion stage. They are are not just doing things that create magic, but they are changed thereby, right? I think there's less of those for sure. And then we get into, if we frame it as legitimacy or not, then we have a problem of, judging the authenticity. And I think that gets tricky. And I think people need to separate what they mean by that. So I I often will talk to people and say, well, hold up. Are we talking about historical like authenticity, in which case, usually, whatever oldest is best, right? Well, this is the older way, so therefore, it's better. And everything else that came afterwards is crap, right? Like, if it's from India, it's great. And if it's a terma, it's crap, unless you're a enigma, in which case, if it's terma, it's great. And if it's comma, it's crap. But <laughs> I mean, it's not crap, but um, then we have cultural authenticity, right? So things don't necessarily need to be old, but we need to know that this is what is is done in this culture, right? um and that it's widespread so things like for instance the santa muerte practices they're fairly new as far as how how widespread the practices are and most of what's being done now i think is fairly new but it's certainly authentic culturally then you've just got pure function it works Ergo, it's authentic. Doesn't matter if somebody had a vision and just pulled it, you know, what some people will just say, well, yeah, they said they had a vision, but really they just yanked it out of their butt. But if it works, then, you know, great. And then I suppose you have just pure meaning and poetic, right? It it may not do anything functionally. It may not be old. It may not be... Culturally relevant, but yet it holds some kind of meaning for people. I think all of these are ways to view authenticity. And Lord knows, I've met some Western practitioners who are extremely dedicated to their practices and, uh, you know i i don't even know that anyone would know who they are because they they go and they get the teachings and then they go home and they practice those teachings they're not necessarily at the dharma center or traveling or or doing much in the community at large and then i've met people that are you know recognized tulkus ethnically tibetan that i would say that person is fraudulent and in every way that matters to me right uh and and a bad actor so who's to say <laughs> there there's you know obviously not everything everyone claims is to be believed uh and the proof is in the pudding and i i try not to present myself by putting out too many, um, well, too many, like, I've done this and that, and I can do, you know, I I try to keep it as real as possible. Under promise (laughs) over deliver.
0: (laughs) It's a good strategy, yes. Now, given that there are these different centers of authenticity, if we could put it that way, well, it's, it's historically authentic or it has authentic in a meaning sense. It may not be historically accurate, but it has a lot of meaning or maybe it, it, it mixes those things or it has it has less of those those other, but it's very functional. You know, who cares about the other? And so there's these different aspects. One thing that I think can happen with that is that it is very easy to slip from one center of authenticity to the other almost without realizing it, whenever one is pressed. So show me the goods. Yeah, yeah, but it's mostly about meaning. It's about, you know, you're you're too superficial. Ah. Think about the meaning. And then it comes out. So it's just all about meaning. It's arbitrary. It says, no, 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 because it has historical precedent. Okay, it has historical precedent, but does it work? Well, the thing is, it's about meaning. So there could be this sort of slip that can happen. I know you're very practically oriented, but you have an appreciation also for the historical and you have an appreciation also for the meaning and the aesthetic and so on. How can you, in a sense, hold one's own centers of authenticity to account in one's practice? Have I framed that correctly? how, how yeah.
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. Um you know, a lot of it really has to do with paying attention to the to claims that are made, even to yourself and then kind of holding others or yourself to that. you know. So I've met people, oh yes, I was authorized to teach. And then you ask those people or the people who knew those people and they're like, no. And then you go back and say, well, I, I can teach because of some other reason. And it's like, well, that may be true, but you said this right? You said this is where it comes from. Um, So, or, you know, if you're, if you are doing a practice, and you're not getting anything out of it, right? If you're getting into it, and you're like, I want this to change my life for the better, in x ways, I want to be happier, wiser, more confident or just practical magic ways. I want to be, you know, wealthier, more stable person, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then you you give it a good while. I'm not talking about people that jump in and then they're like, oh, my life didn't, I went on a retreat and my life didn't instantly change. This is BS. But, you know, people who honestly give it a shot. And and practice diligently, and then step away and say, you know, for whatever reason, this isn't for me. There's a temptation there, even with ourselves, to kind of say, "Well, all right, it didn't deliver those goods, but it's still uh, fulfilling this need, or it's still le- legitimate because of this." And sometimes that's okay because our needs, we've learned something else. We've learned to reframe what we needed, but then sometimes it really is just sunk costs fallacy, right? Like I've got all this crap that I bought and I've spent three years doing this practice with this teacher. Um, so I'm, I'm good or bad. I'm in now, but really, uh, maybe look elsewhere. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, line of
0: inquiry. I think something else that can happen and particularly in religious systems is the the context can be redrawn to, su- to, to, to such vast timelines and such epic vistas that suddenly the idea of any detectable result or feedback uh, becomes irrelevant. For, for example, When one places oneself in the continuity of lives going back and forth, and elevates, say, bodhisattvas and other other beings to such such greater levels of realization and accomplishment than us over a great number of lifetimes, etc., etc., suddenly the idea that it's going to "quote unquote" work for you, um, despite all the assurances, I think, can seem a little uh, remote and kind of irrelevant that one ought to park oneself um, for the long haul, so to speak. And the long haul not being sort of three or four years of dedicated practice, but maybe three or four eons.
1: Yes. And so if that kind of faith moves you, um, like if you can stick to a practice and say, I I have faith that over the course of several lifetimes, this is going to matter, then okay, great um i i've never had that kind of faith i i've never had that kind of faith um i and and you know i've even encountered i've been in situations in in groups where when someone does get a result they kind of get told like Why are you even claiming this result? What are you, some great Mahasiddha or something? You know, come on. And yet, so we uphold these bodhisattvas as as special and unattainable. And I think, God, I you know, I haven't been involved in, in the Dharma community terribly for a, a while but i think it was milarepa who once chided his students because his students were like come on who were you you must have been some really important mahasiddha to be become milarepa and milarepa is like no you're showing lack of faith that this will work in one lifetime that that, that you can attain this by suggesting that if i have attained it i must be somehow special So I kind of fall back to that, like things work or they don't work. Um, And a lifetime is, you know, we unfortunately have these breaks in, in consciousness between lives, right? I think about how different my day would be if I were to have chamomile tea in the morning instead of coffee and like the difference in consciousness well just imagine the difference in consciousness between having a completely different brain like never mind the chemicals in it like a completely different brain and so even between incarnations there there are very few tokus that i think are legit that will talk about previous lives as if they remember them super clearly, right? So I, for me, I want to see some kind of benefit this life, you know? Not not today, not immediately, but this life. And you know, I can I can look around at, at practices that I've been given that I that I have engaged with and worked with and can look at and say, yeah, this was this was definitely worth it. And I've I you know I can look at some practices that I've received in vision or what critics would say I pulled out of my butt, um, and am equally like, yes, this is, this is work. And I also have a few that are like, yeah, this wasn't for me. And, you know, it might be well for others. This, this wasn't for me. And some of them are really surprising. Um, you know, some of them might be some new age thing that I look at and I'm like, that's utter crap. But you know this person swears by it, so I'll give it a shot. And then I find some worth in it. You never can tell. Everything was new at one point.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. What is it that keeps or has kept you going with such a passion and such a dedication? Now, I think we're edging slightly closer to your actual life story. and In that case, I'd like to start from the beginning, but I wonder if it's possible even before that, to comment on what's kept you going.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, what has kept me going is... I forget who, which theologian talked about a God-shaped hole uh, that, that the mystics seek to fill. I don't know if I have a god-shaped hole in my heart, but I have a magic-shaped hole in my head. And I always have since I you know I had some experiences when I was young in you know just involuntary experiences that felt more real than reality. And they stuck with me And then in my teens, when I started to discover mysticism and occultism and magic and whatnot, I knew pretty instantly that, like, I found this thing that called to me. And it called to me in a way nothing else did. And I could read books that were way beyond my years and understand them reasonably well and find, you know, have no trouble finding people to to correct my misunderstandings, which was, you know, I later I came to found out was, you know, a difficulty for a lot of people. But I, you know, I found uh, things just fell into place for me really remarkably easily. And as life becomes more serious, right, you you get out of school and it's sort of like I have to make a life. And uh, this was before the the era of the Internet and, you know, being teaching magic and Buddhism and everything else online being more or less commonplace. Um, so it you know, there were a lot of times where I was like, I should really set this down. Because the study and practice of magic, occultism, spirituality takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And we only have so much time and effort and attention in any given day. And my career is suffering such as it is. I couldn't even call it a career at the time. The job I held at the time, you know, would would suffer. I wasn't putting my energy into making money. I, you know... uh. I put my energy into finding a partner and, you know, maybe at times she would say I'm not putting enough energy into the relationship, but, you know, I, I tried. And then when kids came along there too, it becomes even scarier because now you're responsible for these people. Um, So there were a lot of times when um, I, maybe I should have like set it aside, but I, it's hard to say. I couldn't. I couldn't. Even things that were disappointing. um, I had to, you know, I I had to just keep going. And eventually, uh, it was after kids, actually. That was the point where I was sort of like, well, I can either really put all this down, get a straight corporate job maybe go back to school for something and and uh you know find myself at 50 saying well i would have done this except for you kids or i can make a go of this as a career and uh say yeah i was able to do this because of you kids so i chose the latter and it worked out uh so you know Part of it now is just, this is my, it's my job. (laughs) So, um, you know, even if I have moments of disappointment or crises of faith, I still have that magic shaped hole in my mind. I still want to just keep learning new things from people, but it's also my job. So the reality is, you know, too late to turn back now, (laughs) but I'm 51, so I'm good. How's the professionalizing of
0: your practice? How has that impacted your personal practice? Do you still, are you still able to do a personal practice that's not somehow related, even as perhaps in, in a sort of research and development way to a future offering or sharing, or is your practice now, part of the, uh, I suppose, professional real estate, uh, ripe, ripe for sharing with your yes. students and so on. And that, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Uh, I'm just curious about that. Is there still an intimate dimension to your practice? Has that, has that remained there or is it all given over to sharing throughout, th- through your sort of professional channels now?
1: The good thing about this being my career, and not having to maintain any other job is that I now have enough time to dedicate to the magic and and, and practices that I'm teaching so that I can actually say, yes, I'm, I'm doing this along with you. And, and I mean, a, a large portion of my week is spent answering questions. So, you know, I can... I can be in it with them and say, yeah, you know, and I I was recently doing this myself and, you know, this. And uh, But at the same time, I also still have time for other practices, meditations, devotions that I don't expect to ever teach. Some of them are just practices that I've learned from others that um, I think, you know, they're being taught already so I I don't need to teach them and um yeah they they're they're private practices and devotions and things like that so both but mm-hmm. I have that time if anything impacts my my practice it's probably you know kids and that kind of thing more constant mm-hmm. you know I want to do my sadhana, but the kids need to be driven to the game and <laughs> picked up from skiing. So,
0: and how do you handle that—that that, uh, sort of a conflict? Then,
1: uh, you know, the the kids first. I, I'm I'm when it comes down to it, I'm 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 a pretty boring person when it comes to uh, you know the ins and outs of life married kids i try to be a good dad for me that's part of my practice you know as as far as the life practice like that's what i've committed to um and and find joy in so uh once once the kids were born i knew i would not be running off to nepal or you know backpacking through europe anymore because I mean people still do it with kids but I've never kind of looked at that and been like yeah I want to take my kids over there to do that that that's never it's never appealed to me so yeah uh so the kids always come first when that comes down to it I can it I can always stay up later <laughs> yeah and
0: there's also that line isn't there between practice and application if we take the word Practiced slightly differently. Sometimes there's opportunities, I, I think myself anyway, I sometimes see those opportunities, that imp- those commitments that impinge on one's personal religious routine. Sometimes it's like, oh, here's actually an opportunity to apply the themes of practice. Oddly enough, uh, not to denigrate practice as simply a rehearsal for driving someone somewhere but <laughs> to an errand or something not quite that but there's still something about the tangibility of uh of application especially in relationship to others
1: i think it i think it's vital i think one of the things uh that is lacking from mindfulness practices and and meditation practices and uh a lot of spiritual practices that are being offered to you know the the populace at large right is the context that they're in so yeah you can meditate but unless it reflects in your life in some way and unless you can kind of Hold a view and hold virtues uh, that make sense for you. Not to not to be a monk. I think there are a lot of practices that work well if you're a full time contemplative. That don't necessarily work well if you're not. And so, just like kind of making um, a lesser version of those isn't necessarily the answer. For, for working people. Um, different practices or practices couched in a different context or broken up differently might work better. So it's something to look at. Uh, I I know I live not far from um, one of the big Shambhala centers where they do a 30 day silent retreat here. And I've never never been, but I see the ads and the ads are always, you know, the faces before and the faces after. And the faces before, they're not cranky, but they're just normal. And then the faces after, they're, there's just these beatific smiles, right? And I'm like, I want the two weeks after the 30-day retreat face. Like, the after they've gone back to the, the wife, the kids, the job, and what is like how did that retreat carry forward and i can tell you sometimes it's worse <laughs> sometimes there it's it's like uh it's like coming off of a diet right like you know you weigh a certain amount you you go no carb and then you start eating carbs again and lo and behold you weigh more than you did before you started so yeah I think sometimes we need to think about uh how these actually get couched in lives.
0: Yes, the Kool-aid come down countenance.
1: yeah photo
0: is <laughs> what you want.
1: <laughs> I'm not saying that they put out a disingenuous ad please I, I'm not suggesting that they're they're doing something bad with that ad. um you know, I think everybody shows the upside of something and the upside is real. Just, you know, after that, you've got to have some way to, you know, integrate back into the rest of your life, right? Uh, It's not really different than Christians on Sunday. They go to church and then immediately go home and start mistreating everyone (laughs) and doing exactly, you know, what they said they wouldn't do just a few hours earlier in church.
0: That's a good point. There are people, on. I've interviewed people on the podcast who who claim to be unable now, because they're due to their level of attainment, unable to to feel or experience negative states. And sometimes those negative states are defined as up to and including romantic attraction and so on. Of course, also anger, fear, jealousy, etc. as well. Schadenfreude, presumably. So yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe they're onto something.
1: Maybe, good for them. My practice has made my mind bigger mm. and my awareness bigger. Yeah. So it largely becomes a matter of of not that I don't feel anger or frustration, but that I have the ability to step back if I remember, which by the doesn't happen all the time. Let me me be clear, but I have the ability because of practice to say, okay, anger is in my mind stream, but I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm experiencing anger, but I'm also experiencing everything else. Mm -hmm. And so anger, you can be there. You can, you can have a seat at the table, uh, but you're not, dominating the conversation. Now, in the heat of anger, depends on how bad, in the heat of sorrow and mourning and whatnot. Um, and then there are, some time, there are times where I think as a practitioner, uh, we can sh- show emotion a little bit differently than most people. And so the danger is like, aren't you upset about this? Like, aren't you in, you know, in rage or aren't you devastated? And it's not that you're not, but you're not necessarily showing it in the same way. And so then sometimes, uh, you know, you might have to just kind of, Yes, <laughs> you know to to make other people feel better, but um that said I am not so attained. Uh that that I don't get trapped in in anger or sorrow or anything else uh at times. So for sure I I can be irritable and I've never met somebody who really wasn't. You know, um I lived for a time with somebody that I consider the greatest practitioner I've ever met, Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. I lived with him for over a month. And I saw him kind of, you know, reach states of, of kind of drinking. And, you know, he would say, go get me a whiskey. And then his Jomo would say, don't. So, um, that's the reality of it, right? Um, I think most of the time he was absolutely a mind that is beyond anything that I think I'll achieve in this life. But yet even there, um, you know, can fall into sorrow and, and anger and and things like this. Uh, that aren't necessarily I mean, some people would say, Oh well, no, it's crazy wisdom. it's Vajra Rath. and if I was a better Buddhist, I would think the Guru is showing this, so therefore it is. but the realist in me is kind of like, dude got drunk <laughs> and and you know that for me. If, if spirituality and magic and, and all these other things are real, then they operate a lot like other real things do. So I I I've never liked a lot of the kind of the mysticism and hyperbolic claims around it. But if those folks really don't experience any negative emotions, hey, good for them. Sometimes they don't until they do. Yes, I, I have actually, you know, I, I remember once, I won't say who, but I remember once talking to somebody who claimed that they no longer, like, were troubled by thoughts. And when I suggested that they weren't, they got really pissed. And and they're like, you know, I don't understand why people don't recognize my enlightenment. And I'm like, Right. I can totally see Shakyamuni like stomping around going, Don't these people know I'm enlightened? <laughs> like, uh, you know, that should be your first clue. <laughs> Very
0: interesting. Let's let's pivot into your biography. You mentioned this uh, proclivity for things magic. You had this magic-shaped hole in your in your in your brain. Where do you think that proclivity comes from?
1: Yeah, I can I can trace it. Um I can trace it to uh, being on the playground maybe four or five years old and I don't know if anything triggered it like I don't know if I fell or hit my head or you know playgrounds in the 70s were not the padded wonderlands they are now is all sand and concrete and metal so I might have hit my head or something I don't know but I remember Very clearly. It's probably my most clear memory from that age. Um, But I remember kind of looking at the ground and looking up, but almost as if all reality just stayed down there. Like it was a painting and I was looking out of it into a cosmos. And it was just very strange. Um, It was like looking behind the curtain at a play. And I remember not really even being able to process what I was experiencing, but there were both people, but multitudes of the same person. And there were also other kinds of beings there that I sensed. And then after that, I would have these moments of visitation, for lack of a better word, where it was almost like time would stop, like everything would suddenly go silent. If you've ever been in a room with like an air conditioner in the background, and then it just shuts off, right? So it was like that, It's like the world just shuts off and I can sense these beings behind me. I remember once like being in a car and it happened and it seemed like there was no one in the front seat of the car. I was still a kid, so I was in the back. And these kinds of things happened and then they slowed down and stopped when I was six. But the memory of them really just stuck with me. And then I was in middle school, so 14 years old or so. And I think I was reading a book on tarot, but like not not an instructive book. It was like a young adult novel or something. And I just became fascinated. And so I gave a friend of mine the same book, and we didn't know where to get tarot cards, and we were too young to drive. So I think we found a book, Arthur Edward Waite's Key to the Tarot, in the library, um, and we photocopied all the cards and cut them out. And then uh, a teacher, Blanche Krubner, uh, saw me with these cards and was like, "Would would you like a real tarot deck? Like they don't cost a lot of money. I'll just you know I'll I'll I'm, I'll get you one, and." Uh, that was sort of like, wow, this this is something real that people do, you know? And the school library and town library were almost bizarrely well-stocked on uh, occult stuff. There was this man, myth, and magic encyclopedia behind me. Uh, they had a set of those, which just filled my head with like, yeah this is this is real people do this um and that's when i started to want to practice and that's when i i was devouring any books i could get my hands on and meeting people all the time and that's how i got started um just a weird experience that felt more real than the rest of reality. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I found I had, you know, something of an aptitude for magic. So I would, I would do simple spells um, from the books that I found nothing, but they seem to work out more often than not for small things and that too i was like oh you know not only is this something that you can grow by but this is something that can reflect out into life and and affect the reality around you like right like i always think about the lamp and its rays like if we become illuminated it's an overused phrase but right like if we illuminate ourselves well then that light should should shine outward um, and that, to me, is the the magic bit, the the sorcery of it. And uh, I just I became absolutely fascinated, and uh, went to everything and I could read everything I could get my hands on, and and started practicing what I read. And here I am.
0: <laughs> what kinds of operations, magical operations? were you doing at that time you said you were doing small spells and you noticed that they were working out more often than not what sort of what sort of spells were you doing what sort of effects did you notice
1: oh um you know like everyone else when i decided to try a spell i wanted to do a money spell um and then you know it was about like a week after i made a a talisman to find a hundred dollars which you know for a fifteen-year-old in the '80s, was quite a lot of money, uh, and I found a wallet that had a hundred dollars in it. And uh, you know, I I turned the wallet in, and but I found a hundred dollars. Um, other things, then I would do some things to just see if I could make names occur, right? Uh, I, I would see if I could get someone who was picking on me or bothering me to, to not bother me anymore, right? To, to bind someone, just leave me alone. And these things worked out very well. Not all of them, but enough of them to make me say, well, the ones that didn't work out, why, right? Like Like, obviously there's something to this, so why not all the time? And why uh, why not paranormal miracle things happening when sometimes I would do something and get just a bit, like an immediate response. I remember the first time I tried to conjure a spirit, Astaroth, from uh, a book that, you know, I would never recommend it today for anyone's first book, but we had what we had in the 80s. And um I remember putting, you know, trying it out and just Astaroth was behind me like a person. Um and then when I I wanted her in front of me, the voice and presence were there, but and the sight was somehow there as well. Uh yet not in the, the crystal, <laughs> like at the edge of the circle instead which was annoying. Um, and I think that, too, was one of those things. Like, if this was a fantasy, it would not annoy the piss out of me so much um, or surprise me with things it said. But then at other times, it would be far less so. But then something that I asked for would would happen anyway. So maybe the message got through, but the the conversation wasn't there, right? It's like if somebody sends you an email and you you correct what they asked for, but you don't reply back, uh, like that. So, yeah, I became fascinated with the, the ins and outs. And I think one of the reasons that I never could say this is my tradition and this is the view that I will stick to. For my life and what this tradition says is real is what's real is because for me, it was all real right from the start. So for me to say, yes, this is the true thing. I adhere to it and it's scriptures and that's what's real would be like me saying, you know, I adhere to, you know, northern Italian cuisine. And I will never have anything else because everything else is not real. Um, so that's where my, you know, sort of, I it was, I was presented with eclectic choices right from the start, which obviously as the internet became a thing, only became, you know, more and more prevalent. You were mentioning
0: there a book that you had in the eighties, and I think eighties. I think Poke Runyon.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't that good. It was. I mean, it was. I had. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's like the complete book of witchcraft and magic. I. It's here somewhere, um, and I mean, for a complete book, it was like really thin, but. It had a section on conjuring spirits, most of which was taken right from the Grimoire Verum, which I know now. I didn't know then, but uh, there was enough to be workable, right? So I, you know, I I then later worked through Don Michael Craig's Eleven Lessons in the High Modern Magic. That was it. Uh, Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft and then uh, later hooked up with the OTO and uh, got into Crowley for a little bit, and yeah. But yeah, poke poke. Run- I would have killed to have material from Poke Runyon back then, but I, I had what I had. <laughs> Knowing what you know
0: now about magic and about various different religious and mystical traditions, how would you explain, or, or another way of putting it, do you have any insight as to what happened to you at five years old? Why it began to happen, what was happening to you, and why it stopped at six years old?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I don't know if there was a trigger. I mean, my ego would love to say I'm a special person and and that this just happened because of who I am. I suspect, though, that that is not the case. Um, I suspect that perhaps I I hit my head, or uh, something, or maybe somebody hit me, or something like that. Because you know, like I said, rough and tumble. Um, And so it might very well have been a physical trauma. I don't. I just don't remember, but you know i i once got hit by a car while riding a bicycle and i don't remember that either so um but whatever the trigger was i think what happened is that for lack of a better word i i shifted away from being oriented to the physical into being oriented to the astral, right? Uh, and so got a little view uh maybe, you know, maybe even a view of a different dimension of space where I don't know enough about mathematics to really talk about four-dimensional space. <laughs> but um, I would, you know, I would say that my brain shifted a little bit at that point and that this could happen to a lot of people and knowing what i know now about how reality is constructed how samsara exists how we don't know anything other than through our own minds um i almost wonder why it doesn't happen more often Uh, and I think it probably does happen more often to more people than we know. It's just that they dismiss it, you know, as a weird thing. My dad, for instance, is a very straight-laced guy. Uh, But as I got further into it, he would talk about, yeah, I remember when this happened and, and there was this you know, I was at a, a bar and I knew everything that everyone was saying about 10 seconds before they said it. It was like deja vu for half an hour. <laughs> and then I slipped back or another time that, that you know, as I got into it, my mom uh, went a little new age for a while and dragged him along to something. And she came back like pissed because whatever exercise they did at the the store my dad had visions and you know my mom didn't get anything so i think it happens to people more the the there is more to reality than we you know want to acknowledge but we don't talk about it a lot because you get looked at weird um and what's funny though is now that this is my job, and like I said, I'm a pretty boring person. So I, I, you know, I'm just a dad, and I, I don't lie about what I do. I don't try to sugarcoat it. So when I'm at like a school function or something, I'm a riot. I'm an author. I write books on magic, witchcraft, occultism, um, and it's actually, I'm shocked at how few people. Find it weird, and how many people will kind of say, "Yeah, you know, I, I want to check that out," and then they'll confide in me an experience they had or a practice they did or or something like that. So, uh, it's it's pretty widespread. You know, you're talking here
0: about this uh, success that you had early on in your magical operations. And, of course, you have many, many students. You have uh, pioneered in in, in many ways certain magic courses online. You've been an early adopter of that. And your courses are are very well-known and well-regarded. So you've had many students and for a long time, too. So you've seen, presumably, different levels of, as problematic as the word is, success, um, results, however you want to put it presumably in your student body so when you compare them to yourself, or include or include yourself in that whole mix uh, what do you think are the factors? have you identified or observed any factors uh, that determine uh, or influence the success are some people just talented just like some people are you know, talented in movement or the ta- you know the talented intellectually for example are some people just Kind of, they just kind of have it. Or are there lifestyle things? What are the factors? I'm curious very much if you could also include yourself. Seems you had a sort of natural talent for it, as well as that youthful passion and you, you, that, that carries, carries one into such, such endeavors. When you compare yourself to your student body, have you observed anything?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the youth is really kind of uh, a key for me because I was, it all became real for me before people could drum it into my head that it was not real right so by the time i was a teenager and people were like you know this is real right this isn't real right this is this is bullshit intelligent people don't believe in this i could look at them and be like you're not real this is real (laughs) um so for me the the youth was a big part of it i think there are there are in fact talented people that can be talented in different ways and then there's also meeting a everyone has challenges so it's about meeting those challenges so i have, i often talk to people who will say i can't visualize and I, and there, there are, of course, people with aphantasia who really do not visualize. Um, but then there are people who get upset because they're not getting visited by spirits or, or they're not seeing things in the way that others are saying that they're seeing things in the way in which I sometimes will say that they're seeing things. And so it's easy to say they're not talented and people who see things are talented. But what I noticed over time and having the opportunity to, to you know, interface with hundreds and hundreds of people is that a lot of times those people who don't see anything will be very successful in what they want as far as spell work. So they'll do spells to get whatever it is that they're working on and that'll manifest for them um or they'll work on they'll use magic to help them along with something that they're trying to do personally and it will work for them and they will become stronger wiser better in in any discernible way and so for me who I close my eyes and there's a good chance I'm gonna see things, right? If I, if I attend the open circle, if somebody could make something up entirely, lead me on a path working, I'm gonna see something. But what I came around to is that's not necessarily a good thing. That's not necessarily better than the people who don't see much. In fact, it can be worse because it's all low level gobbledygook, right? You have to develop discernment. You have to cut through that. It's like, it's like dreams, right? We all have dreams every night. They're usually just short-term memories being translated into long-term memories. So they don't mean much. We have to cut through that if we wanna have a meaningful dream. It's the same thing if you just settle, well, I said a prayer and now I feel something. Okay, but is it speaking meaningfully? Is it giving you actionable things? Is it really what you're reaching out to or should you reach out further, or try to get a clearer connection? Um, And that's at the point that the talent one way or the other starts to become irrelevant, talent will only get you so far. Uh, After that, it becomes practice and engagement. Now, are there some people who, no matter how hard they practice, maybe they won't get anything? I think there probably are. That's that's the reality. Um, and and for as well regarded as my classes are, I will occasionally, not often, thankfully, but occasionally get somebody who's like, Look, I gave this a real shot. Um, I'm not getting much out of it. To which I will say, Okay, you know, I understand. And I'm I'm not gonna look at you and say, well, you didn't work hard enough or, or anything like that. Like, because I've done practices that other people have found value in and just been like, this was not, not for me at any rate. So uh, I think in the end though, for most people, there is some amount of ability, of capacity just because we're human beings. Think about just just plain old meditation, shamatha meditation. right? People say, I'm good at it. People say, I'm bad at it. People that say they're good at it, are they really good at it? Or did they just cut through the very surface level of thoughts to the point that they're now sitting there going, yeah, I am so clear. I am just not thinking at all. Good for you, Jason. I' I'm, I'm so clear not even grasping that those are thoughts that, you know, you're no longer really focused. And then other people who will sit, they'll get distracted, they'll refocus, they'll get distracted, they'll refocus, they'll get distracted, they'll refocus. They'll get distracted, they'll refocus. And they'll say, oh, my God, I'm terrible at this. I keep getting distracted and I need to refocus. When in fact, both of those people are having the same exact experience. They're just interpreting it differently. One of them is frustrated at how much they're getting distracted because they thought they would sit down, the clouds would open, light would shine down and all would be clear. And the other person really thinks that the light is shining down and all is clear when it's not um but both of them if they just stick with it will find that it's not something they can really fail at um that maybe there will be some talent that pulls them over a hurdle but that same talent becomes a an obstacle later on i think You know, schools are filled with talented and gifted programs filled with the kids that as adults are like, yeah, turned out it wasn't that easy. (laughs) My talent only got me so far. So I wish I could say I've identified it all, but um, I think for most people, if they keep at it and work at it, they'll get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the barriers to
0: one of the, one of, yeah, I think for shamatha, one of the things is just getting around to actually doing it. I don't mean sitting and practicing. I mean, whilst on the mat. Yeah. I've noticed for myself anyway, very often my practice is discovering how much else I was doing than the actual thing and how simple that technique is. And it's powerful because of its simplicity and, how difficult it is to reduce oneself to that simplicity so much else going on but so i think in some ways if i reflect on my own shamatha practice for instance it's in terms of shamatha it hasn't gone very far at all but in terms of recognizing what my mind is doing actually some (laughs) some some progress there and uh it's odd. It's almost as if the Shamata, for myself, is often I feel a feel rather a standstill. But then so much around it is is beneficial that um, I, I almost embrace that sort of inverse progress.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I know exactly what you mean. and And I think that in this day, in particular, in in the world that we now live in, especially post two thousand and seven, Um, it's important for people to integrate idle time that if you're going to have a meditation practice or a contemplation practice, that you also have an idle time practice where you really aren't doing anything, including focusing on your breath or, or whatever it is. So and the reason for that is, we no longer have boredom, right? We we've we've just kind of taken all idle time out of life. Uh, it was already being chipped away at with with TV and radio and and constant things. And then in two thousand seven, the invention of smartphones. Now we don't even stand online. and and get bored we we get in line for a coffee and if there's more than a minute or two checking the email no one is ever bored no one has any time and we can also fill our lives with spiritual practices in the same way i'm going to do this and then i'm going to do that and then i'm going to do this and i'm going to say this mantra and then i'm going to focus on this and then i'm going to without any idle time no connections are made right um and so shamatha if we don't have that idle time elsewhere becomes a release valve where yeah you know we we can't um just focus on the breath or experience clarity because the moment we slow down enough to do that, our brain is now like, oh, thank God, let me make these connections. And so I don't know, do, like during those moments, do you get like, let me grab a notebook because all of a sudden I have ideas that I don't normally have. Um, And so I honestly think people that have cushion time should also have scheduled idle time. Where they just walk around and do nothing. Or, you know, uh, I think Gurdjieff was big into this. He would give people at the priory repetitive tasks, like, you know, breaking apart rocks or digging a ditch or or something like that. Maybe he needed a ditch dug at the so, you know, kill two birds with one stone, wax on, wax off. But um at the same time. He's so right that that give the mind time to be idle, to make connections. Um yeah, so I, I think it's important for those of us that aren't full-time contemplatives. And honestly, it's probably important for for them. I I've talked to a couple monks in Nepal that we're actually jealous of of Western visitors. And they're like, I don't have time to meditate. Like, you know, I've got pra- sadness to chant, chores to do, <laughs> you know, um, the, the, I do not have, like, I can't just go sit in my room and meditate on Havadra for eight hours a day. That's not what being a monk is, so. Do you ever, like when you sit down and, and you have those moments um, where it's, maybe you're not making headway in Shamatha, but you're making headway as a person, like you're making headway in your mind. Like, do you ever get the urge, like, is that when ideas come to you?
0: Yes, I see what you mean. I, well, sometimes, I think more what I mean is when I reflect on, say, my shamatha practice, the thing that, the, the thing that I think to myself, gosh, I'm really glad. <laughs> the precious thing, if you like, is not necessarily the progress in shamatha itself, such as it is, or such as it is isn't right. in my case, but it's the recognition of the, the, the degrees of dissipation that I was unaware of. Yeah. That kind of like, sobering up to degrees of dissipation is i think just a great not to be too hyperbolic about it a, dra- a great treasure actually it is because that when once you once you've seen that once you have noticed that again and again you start to think oh my goodness and then all of life becomes slightly more lucid yes when you're when you catch on to those 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 dissipations those unconscious when they become conscious dissipations you think oh, you get so much i think from yep. that I, I found anyway uh, as for, maybe that is shamatha um, yeah, yeah, but anyway enough really about enough about my uh, extremely amateur shamatha practice so you know another aspect that i've noticed seems to influence people's experience of any kind of practice religious spiritual contemplative or otherwise anything really is is the why the motivation for getting into 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 it that seems to can often have a great effect not only on success or failure relative success or failure but also on just one sort of ex- experience moving through the the learning process and the practice process and the application process given you've had so many students come through your courses have you observed uh, categories of why why is it that people come to your courses why do they come to magic are there different types that you've noticed or is it really as diverse as, as every single person's motivation is somehow especially different
1: well I, I mean i think i i'm i'm a big believer in the individual so i think everyone's motivation is a little different but certainly there are categories um there are people who get into it because well, they want to get laid and paid they they wanna they want to do the magic for um you know for for completely hedonistic reasons. Uh, and I'll usually tell people, you know, if that's the only motivation, there are actually more sure and better ways to do that. Like you, you know, you should go and, and, and become a hedge fund manager and, you know, take a class in picking up people or whatever, whatever it is you do. Um. So there is that, then there are the people that are just moved by spirit and moved by magic in the way that I am, that they feel it's there and it's a calling. And maybe they even tried to ignore it, but they they won't let it go. And then there are also people who are, are in it because it's popular, right? Uh, it became a thing. It became a way to be counterculture for a while. And I think whatever people's initial motivation is, for me, is less important than what keeps them going. And, I, you know, I, I can't remember the name uh, right now of the the Mahasiddha who was originally a, a, a bandit. And he went to go rob a guru, and I forget exactly what happened, but uh, the guru, you know, he wanted to know then, well, if you're a great Mahasiddha, tell me how I can turn invisible so that I can be like the greatest bandit. The Maha Bandit. The Maha Bandit, right. So he's like, sure, go ahead. You circle this stupa a 100,000 times, say this mantra, when you're done, a snake will appear and a sword will appear in your hand, chop the head off the snake and you'll learn how to become invisible. And so he did. And everything happened exactly as the guru said, but he also attained enlightenment in the process, even though he was really kind of going for the banditry. At the end of it, he didn't want to be a bandit anymore. He he realized, um, you know, that there was so much more. Uh, and so he became the mahasiddha whose name i can't remember but i always try i try to keep that in mind because if i get somebody who joined it because it's very popular right i might be tempted to to think ugh you know you're 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 just you you don't feel that call you know, you, you just wanted to, but you never know what that person is going to wind up as Uh a year, five years, 10 years down the line. Um, Cause I know I didn't realize where I would end up a year, five years, 10 years down the line from where I started. So I, tr- I don't think too much about people's initial motivation. Um, but i do notice it for sure and there you know there are some people who they get in and maybe they have utterly unrealistic expectations uh they they for whatever reason believe in like harry potter magic and they think that uh you know like if they do a spell to heal covid in new york city that next week there should be no covid in new york city um to give an example and so those are the folks where i kind of have to be like it doesn't work that way it that that's not how it works and if that's what you want this ain't that so you know here here's your money back and and uh you know i don't want to i don't want to misrepresent what we do uh but for the most part you know i i think people feel the call to be spiritual and uh some people they they are disenchanted with the religion of their birth and they start exploring and they get moved they hear about something that is working for someone else and they give it a try, you know? Um, And that's kind of what I did myself. It's an honest inquiry. Well, I think we might
0: be coming towards the end of our time. This has been so fascinating. I must petition you for a sequel. We haven't, I'll be honest with you, scratched the surface of what I'd hope to ask you about, although it's been so interesting and fascinating in an unexpected way. So thank you very much. I must petition you for a sequel.
1: Anytime, you tell me when and I'll be here. Great. Uh, may I ask one last
0: question? Perhaps it's a little bit of a teaser question, just to open a, another thread. Um, you know, you mentioned there people casting spells against COVID and that sort of thing. And it, you know, I immediately thought of Wiccans against Trump, whatever that yeah. was. I, I remember at the time Trump was elected, I guess, 2016 yep um and uh, there were sort of cir- circles of occultists i mean actual circles as well uh, would gather in a circle and um you know, kind of curse him and this sort of thing. you have written about magical protection, psychic self-defense to to coin Dion fortune's term there. um you've written a classic book on it actually, and I, so that's something cert- certainly I'd like to ask you about so praying against covid you're saying that's harry potter magic what about wiccans against trump how does that fit in in other words can you say something a little bit about can you edge into curses and that kind of yeah that kind of offensive magic how how does it work what what's a realistic way of looking at that what about the wiccans against trump
1: sure what what happened there so, you know, I I I have this this year, if I have a theme, it's been a saying that I've been using again and again, which is magic is real and it works like other real things. Right. And it's it. I keep saying it because people who think magic is real keep acting like it doesn't work like other real things. So when we think about let's end COVID in New York City. Or let's, you know, I want to do a spell for peace in the Middle East right now. Does it work? Well, it, it has an impact, just not enough to be felt. Like if you and I jump up and down right now, I think we're to some minuscule degree affecting the rotation of the earth. <laughs> just not enough for anyone to notice or or care but we're still you know we're we're doing our effort is having an effect um if i try to push my a toyota tundra up a hill it's not going to happen it doesn't mean that i'm not real it's just the effort isn't there so you need to find now if you're doing magic to get the the Rafa pass open to alleviate you know some of the 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 crisis in the Middle East now you've got a better shot if you know the names of the people who are making that decision and those who are lobbying them now you've got an even better shot right so it all becomes what are the things that we can, Enchant and influence. So now turn to Wiccans against Trump, or or occultists against Trump, and and whatnot. <clears throat> Trump is just one guy, right? So we don't have the same problem. It's not peace in the Middle East. It's one dude. So why is he still walking around? And in fact, why is he so vigorous? I, I'm not going to make any secret. I don't like Trump. I'm not a, you know, I would absolutely, um, you know, not, I, I don't ever want to see a Trump presidency again. Um, I didn't want to see it the first time. It And it, I'm traumatized in so many ways by it. So, but why then didn't the Wiccans or the occultists or anyone else that was doing magic against some work? Well, there's a few reasons. One, not really great links. And when someone is very, very widely known, there's a lot of attention on them, which means there's a lot of influence. So your magic is only going to have so much influence. The other thing is people are discounting the protection magic that he has going, right? And I'm not even talking about occultists doing magic. I'm talking about, let's say there's a thousand witches of various stripes doing magic to to jinx him in one capacity or another. Well, there are probably 3 million christians praying for his safety and when you when you start to kind of peek into that world they don't call it magic but they understand the principles they understand that even if you know all of those people are not Adepts of any kind or particularly holy people, when there's three million of them, there's a lot of power there, right? If you, if three million people storm uh, a fort or a base or an embassy, they're getting in. None of them have to be particularly, you know, like Navy SEALs. (laughs) There, there, there's three million of them. Um, and so. He has this going for him. It's just simple. It is protection magic. And it's a lot to overcome. That said, did things get through? I think things did, maybe. Um. He certainly was not problem-free. He certainly was not... Um, you know, he, he he certainly had his fair share of difficulties, and he lost the 2020 election. So I think that there were people doing some things that worked, but again, what are, what are the obstacles? What are you pushing against, and what's pushing against you? So that's really the deal with Trump, and it's the deal with all. All magic of any kind, curses or not. What are you pushing up against? What are you trying to influence, right?
0: Is it easier, would you say, from a magical point of view to oppose, say, a political figure that you dislike or to, I suppose, take take a leaf out of the Christian's book and, and pray for that figure, in fact, and perhaps through that positive support, assuming one considers oneself to be in the right, which I think is probably a prerequisite to curse somebody. From that same starting place, could one pray for somebody and hope through that act to introduce what you consider to be, presumably, are assured of is positive influence, yeah. m- namely yours? Is that an easier way than going head to head with somebody? or? is it not really the way to think
1: about it? It you know, it's, it's not, it's not easier. It, I would say it's almost never easier to do positive magic. I, I always, uh, in the 80s during the Satanic Panic, a lot of occult publishers were trying to, to really kind of whitewash witchcraft and say, you know, any, nobody... No real witch would ever do magic and if if, it a curse. Um, And if anyone ever, you know, to do a curse, one would have to be so advanced that you wouldn't want to do a curse. And it's simply not the case. Um, Think about a knife, right? It takes a certain amount of skill to dice an onion well, it takes a lot of skill to perform a tracheotomy. With the knife. It takes almost no skill to put the pointy end in somebody's, you know, or or slit somebody's throat. It's it's forced. Now, obviously, you can train and be better at it and and nuance. So, but it's not easier to be positive. It's not more effective to be positive. It really is a matter of. Where is your where's the 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 tipping point? Where's the lever? What can you actually tip? Right? So if you're trying to sway a national election in America, where are the counties? Like, never mind, like, where are the swing states? What counties actually are the Like, you know this city is going to vote Democrat. You know this area is going to vote Republican. You would need to do something incredibly miraculous to sway that. But there's always a couple counties that can tilt it one way or another. That's why they're swing states. So now you've got something that you can push. And then how are you pushing it? Are you just sitting at home doing mantras right like i can sit and do vajra Kalaya mantras to overcome the obstacles facing my candidate or you know <laughs> stabby stabby with the perb of the bad guy um but <clears throat> if you can go there or you know people you can send something there to actually be in that place then There's a tangible anchor to that, right? I think, uh, in one of your podcasts, John uh, Reynolds talked about the statues, uh, that uh, Pabangkapa had taken down, which compromised the magical security of Tibet. The reason that there were statues is that, like, that physicality matters, anchoring from the astral to the etheric to the physical, it matters. So that's sort of where the real magic comes in. That's why in root work, they're using powders and, and uh, you know, and oils and, and so on and so forth, and, and going to great lengths to get links to targets. They're not just sitting there wishing that something would happen. Now, if you get 3 million people to wish something would happen, then, you know, that might be enough to overcome those links or that that lack of specificity. But it's hard to get 3 million people to do something.
0: How would you advise a, let's say, this is hypothetical, I suppose, or maybe not. How would you advise a political candidate in, let's just say, protection magic? Let's limit it to that, in, unless, you, unless you'd like to extend it. But at least in protection magic, it seems that no matter what you stand for, what position you take, there's uh, some group somewhere across some aisle or another that's going to hold the, a different position and will consider your position to be wrong or the enemy and so on. So there's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be strongly held emotion belief, identity, all these sorts of powerful group, group thought, the potency of that, group belonging, and so on. So when you step into that kind of a race, you step into that kind of a sphere, you're playing in those fields, whether, whether you like it or not, call it what you want. Call it magic, call it, um, you know, group psychology, whatever. So how would you advise a political candidate who presumably in top secret would uh, come to you
1: in terms of protection magic? Well, oh, good question. I've never been asked that one before. Um, so the first thing I would do is I would tell them to get someone they trust. And if they came to me, I would, you know, for a political candidate, I would probably do one-on-one work um but get someone to make them an amulet a talisman something that they can keep on their person it doesn't have to be seen um and then another amulet for their home for where they are right and the reason i say that is because Their job is to be a political candidate, not a wizard. So telling them to do banishing rituals a daily or things like that, that's for the practitioner to do, right? Now, if they then want to hire someone to kind of constantly be working on their behalf, that would be even better. And so if somebody is coming to a sorcerer saying, I'm worried about psychic protection, then they might be uh, the kind of person who can divert some money and and hire somebody usually out of a personal budget. This is not unheard of by the way um it, it happens uh I know of it happening in business in the corporate world quite a bit. I know a couple people that have done it politically, always under the table um and then i know of examples in in russia and uh a few more in the middle east that you know do this kind of thing and they have their rasputin for lack of a better word you know they 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 have their john d (laughs) um but it all has to be much more hush hush now because that would be fodder for what a crackpot they are. Um, but yeah, I would tell them to quietly hire someone on the side, you know, maybe through uh an intermediary to do work for them to keep, you know, set them up. If they trusted that person, you would want to have personal links. So that person would have you know, a lock of hair or something or, you know, a little vial of blood or something from the person that they want to protect. But then that's a lot of trust you're placing in that person. But that's what I would recommend. Um, get Get someone else to do it because you're not, you know, you're not a professional, just like you hire a bodyguard, hire a cy- a psychic bodyguard and then decide on the degree, have them make an amulet for your person and your home. Uh, If you feel comfortable, if that person felt comfortable having themselves cleansed in their home or office cleansed, then that would be ideal uh, as well. So that would be it though. Um, I wouldn't, I would definitely recommend not spending too much time or effort on it if they wanted to spend a lot of time or effort on it hire somebody that knows what they're doing to spend that time and effort and get about the work of governing gosh darn it
0: (laughs) and what would the practitioner be doing to expect what would a practitioner be think okay i have this this political candidate now has come to me in secret and uh you know maybe i have a clipping of their toenail or you know yeah something like that what What's the practitioner going to be thinking? Okay, here's what I'm going to have to put into place here.
1: Right. So the we've the amulet. First of all, if they had a client that was receiving a consistent level, uh, a, a barrage like that, the first thing I would want to do is have some place that is not my house to do the work in. Uh, to it could be on the property, but. A shed outside, you know, um place that is not where you're sleeping to do the work. And then it becomes a matter of I would set up some kind of uh witch bottle. I would put plants around that area, watch the plants. If the plants start to die, if the witch bottle shatters, um then there might be something that you need to do more than what you do every day but certainly if you're uh i would be actively doing a protection practice for that person praying to the you know to the gorgons to turn anyone to stone that wants to attack them or or whatever the practice is um you know if a simhamuka practice a dokpa every day to turn away negativity so that you're doing that every day. And at the same time, you're watching for something that that is even stronger, right? Because magical security isn't really that much different than regular security in that case. You have a, an embassy or a building. It's got guards. It's got a fence but they're not but when they're uh, know that they're going to be under attack there's four times the amount of guards the security protocols become like it takes a half an hour to get in and out of the place and uh you know there's maybe concrete barriers in addition to the fence so magical protection then if something happens that's when okay well now we want to Conjure spirits. We want to do energy practices. We want to contact, you know, talk to the target. How are, are they experiencing any symptoms? I need to be doing more. Can we meet in person? Another cleansing, um, shielding, that kind of thing. So you respond uh, to situations that arise, even if you have some level of protection. And here too is where that magic is real and works like other real things. There are people out there that think they are protected. They've got a, you know, they've got a Singamuga pendant that was blessed by a Rinpoche. They are now immune. That's not the case. You know, it's not the case for anyone. Um, There's no such thing as completely foolproof protection. That's not the world we live in. Um, you take reasonable protection. And then if risks go up, you take greater protection. And it's it's just like that. So if those plants started dying or if there were, I would probably do divination regularly. And if divination started to show that something was coming, then you want to amp up the protection, it's hard with a political candidate though, because they have to be seen. So you can't do too many things to just shield them, because that can also make people seem un you know, either hidden or hard distance, hard to relate to. And that's that can be its own difficulty. And you take it to the shed, why? You take it to the shed at the front door excuse me, sorry that Alexa there, um, you take it to the shed because the muck that comes in that you're protecting against, even successfully, um, it's mucky. You know, it can, it that itself can attract more negative entities. Also, if you find yourself dealing with very wrathful spirits for counter magic all the time then it's best to do that off property right um because those kinds of wrathful spirits are surrounded by wrathful spirits and they attract more wrathful spirits right um every now and then if you if you need to do some heavy protection or heavy curse work or something like that, sure, you can do that in your house and then you cleanse and you're done. But if you're doing it all the time, well, then that's what you're surrounding yourself with. I always tell people it's like, it's kind of like, you know, if you needed to go to the mafia for a favor, <laughs> you needed to go to Tony Soprano for a favor. You, you get the favor, you know what you're giving him in exchange and it's done right but if you want to be tony's friend and you want to hang out all the time that's different that now you're going to be surrounded by those people all the time and sooner or later it's gonna it's gonna cause problems so it's like that
0: this has been absolutely fascinating i look forward to the sequel Jason Miller, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos,
1: and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.